0: Do you have a Bible with you? And I'd like to open and please in Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God? Uh, this is one of song the songs on the Bibles of an Australian band. Many um, of you will know the tune, don't sing along well with it. It's a fine line between pleasure and pain. And this passage that you heard read is about pleasure and pain and they grow from the same source. And I would suggest to you that this thing we see at the end of Romans 8, beginning of Romans 9, is an of just what a healthy saved Christian feels like. So let's pray as we look back into Romans that it will be especially useful and life-changing for us. Father in heaven, you've given us all Scripture, um, and it's for our profit. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit now we would profit and learn from important things about you and about ourselves and how to live well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, <laughs> some of you may have met a fellow called Egan Gableman. He was a senior accountant for a large firm. He then went to um, Bible College, more college Sydney, and Moore College in Sydney. He then went a Missionary to New Guinea. And when he was in New Guinea, he sort of had a couple of experiences with God and the Holy Spirit he was and he would start to call himself a charismatic minister. That, that means an exil, but, but he came back to Sydney and he founded an independent church in Lane Cove. It grew to be over a thousand people, which is was a pretty exciting work that God did um, under the sort of leadership of Ian Yeager, And I had the pleasure of meeting him once. I learned from friends he was a really wise man, so I asked him a couple of questions about some things we were doing at another church. And he, as he was giving us some really helpful clues that I still remember uh, and try to practice, he told me a story about a woman who joined their church because she was asked to leave the local Anglican church. She was asked nicely, uh, but I hope, we, I hope we would never do anything quite like that. And here was the story he said. This woman joins their church, and between 20 and 30 people came into their church through this woman, not from coming from other churches, but they were not, they didn't know Jesus. This woman used her God-given ministry and they became Christians, uh, well over 20 folk, through this one Chinese lady. And the reason why she was asked to leave the the local Anglican church was because, I'll tell you what happened, There'd be a sermon and it would be saying like the end of Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us, who can separate us from the love of God, nothing, and all triumphant and joyful and she'd be all excited about being Christian and then she'd start to cry. Because she would think of family members and workmates and friends she had who just didn't know this. And she just thought how sad it was that there was this wonderful treasure that people that she cared about didn't know. So she would finish up in tears often. Not every time, but often. And then of course if someone preached from some of Jesus' stories about the judgment day and the return of Christ, and that Jesus will say to some, come and to others depart from everlasting we darkness, she would often finish up in tears about people she knew from work, friends and family. She just think this is so terrible, they don't know, how can to get them to know? And in the end, after this had gone on for about a year or so, the local Anglican church found these displays of emotion a bit too taxing, so they suggested you might be happy at the local charismatic church where they're more into that sort of stuff. Now that that's a sad reflection on mine, but anyhow, God used her wonderfully at that particular church. And I'll ask you, do you think she is a healthy person? Has she got a healthy spiritual insight? Or is there something wrong with her that she should be shown the exit? Um, because I think you'll find in Romans 8 and Romans 9 the sort of reason why this lady could be so move on the heart of her friends. So let's uh, have a look at this. Uh, and the two headings serious joy, that is fun. And serious pain, oh, that's not so much fun. Serious joy is the end of Romans 8. It doesn't get much more serious or joyful than that. And serious pain we find in Romans 9, but it's echoed again in Romans 10. It's a fine line. It's actually like a fine line between pleasure and pain. The same tree produces both fruit when it's functioning well. Now why would we look at Romans 8? Yeah, we looked at it last September. Um, well, it's the, it is the conclusion of chapters 1 to 8, and it begins with these words, what then shall we say in response to these things? So what's the logical response to chapters 1 through to 8? Next week we'll put up on the screen some diagram of how to understand how the how Romans falls together. It's been, I think, fairly called the most important letter ever written. You might want to think about that, are Or disagree with I'm happy to you know, recant and change my opinion. I, I think it's probably right. I do not think about it that, but the scholar said, there's no letter that has had such important and repeated impact on human society than this letter. Right? People often don't realise how indebted they are to it. That's true with lots of things. Um, But this is is an extraordinary letter, and this is the conclusion of this section, this great section of joy about how they write with God, as seen so brilliantly in that um, little movie we had. How do they write with God? That's what the first eight chapters are about, and then the impact of that on us. I've always been nervous when you get near it to a passage like Romans 8 because I know for some of us yeah, it is your favourite passage. I was pleased at the 8 o'clock service this morning that Sally was up there, isn't she? She's not today. Yeah, because I know she loves it so much and I don't want a record for it. Like you might like that and Sixth Symphony and, and uh, I do, I think it's one of my favourites. often goes on the headphones that helps me. It's Pastoral Symphony and if I said yesterday I was going to play it for you, you know, with the Tin whistle that I bought last week and I'm learning. You know, you might think, please not The more you like me to do music i oh really? Or I can hum it. Dun 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 Well that's what I'm gonna do with this passage. I'm sorry. so we'll do the best we can. It's an argument in passage. It's interesting when you read the Bible how often it, it uses argumentation. It's not saying you should wait the Bible and have a spiritual feeling. You basically have yeah, almost no spiritual feelings that are healthy and good apart from using you, your God-given brain. It's when you think about things that you get and oh, okay. That's really good news, isn't it? But you've got to understand it and appreciate it. So the first thing is let's have a look at the deep joy, just in two basic questions. There's, there's actually five questions in the section. We're just going to look at the two basic structure ones. What then should we say in response to all these things in Romans 1 through 8? If God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's logical isn't it? If God is your ally, if God is your friend, if God is your defender, if God is your strength, who cares what's on the other side of the ledger? Now this is a common way that the Bible works. Let me read you from Psalm 118. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can the immortals do to me? This is the logic of it. If God is for us, but the question is, why would anyone think that God is for us? Many of you will know the famous story about Abraham Lincoln when they had the Civil War, North versus South, that someone said to him, "No, uh, President Lincoln, and do you think God is on our side? And he rightly said, I am much more concerned that we be found on his side. <laughs> that Rather than us pretend that God is for us. But how do you know that God is for you? Well, we will read the Romans chapter one day. But let me see. Let me show you how we are. If God is for us, if God is our ally, if God is our strength, if God is our fortress, who can be against us? How does he prove that? He is in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If you needed a kidney, and I gave you one of my kidneys, and then I saw you starving to death for the need of $2, you think I'm going to say, I'm sorry, I don't care for you that much. I did give you a kidney, but I'm not spare you two bucks. This is the logic of it. If he's done the great, of course you can trust him for the small. He gave his only begotten son. There's the evidence. Now the problem with this sometimes is we we, we I, I I've occasionally had little arguments on social media with people and um, um, it's probably a complete waste of time, but not, not always. But one of the things I've, I've challenged have challenged someone's gone offline because they could seem really out of community. someone had they'll recount a lovely story. Say, so, you know, they had a, they had their grandkids' a birthday party in the park and it all went well and it was didn't rain until they all got home, and then they'd finish up with the same thing like, isn't God good? I know what they mean, but I hate that, and it's a very dangerous way to talk. So, the change is good, you had a birthday party, and it rained, until the party finished, and then the sun came out. On well, that line of logic, say, well, if one is evidence that God is good, that must be evidence that God is crap. Right? Isn't God rubbish? Now, I know what they mean, but they say, I'm really thankful to God that that his plans have come less than my plans. And I've seen semi-meric sometimes with with weather and outdoor events. I've seen literally the huge storm come up from the south of Sydney, we're having an outdoor Christmas carol thing, and we paid a lot of money and lots of people coming, and literally the clouds came across and they parted around Queen's Park, and they went down and rained around it and went up the other way. I've also been involved in Christmas carols where the rain came and had to cancel He's got a good one day and bad the next. No! We've just got to stop. It's not a helpful, it's not a biblical, it's not a Jesus way to think. How do you know what God thinks of you? How do you know that God is on your side? Listen to verse 32. You'll do this the second time in the same paragraph. If God is you to be against us, he who did not spare his own son. It always points to Good Friday. Romans 5 verse 8, one of my favorite verses. God is demonstrating, it's a science word. God is proving his love. How? Have we got a fine day for our wedding? No. But while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You cannot get more proof than that. You don't need more proof than that. Just stop and Think about it. He had one son. He loves sinners. He sends him to die for us. You can't get more on your side than that. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now he's going to talk about suffering and hardship and death coming up soon, in the way that that fits in. But we just need to see this: God is God is not just mildly on your side. You know, there's all this chapters in there about maybe there'll be war, you know, in this part of the world in the next few years. There may well be. Right? Ten before I'm not. I'm not. Yesterday, I know nothing about these things. But we say, well. What happens if that you know, the Communist Chinese government decides they could do with some land and some resources? And maybe they get obsessed with houses as we have, we want to have a few houses in Australia, which is Sydney already. I'd say America will help us, will they? But they're our allies, yes. Have allies ever deserted people when they need them? Yes. Or old England engagement has no help at all in World War II because they have problems of their own. And to be fair to the Americans, as much as I hate to admit, they did say about flipping bacon, But they may not do it next time. How do you know how passionately committed somebody is to you? Or well, what the Bible is saying, if he gives his son for you, he's on your side. He doesn't say you'll feel it, necessarily. You'll feel it if you believe it, if you realise it's true. There's great joy, really serious joy here. God is on our side. Then he breaks the second part, which isn't the second question. He said, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? So he us take that. God might like us, but what about our sin? What about if someone says, hang on, hang on. God is just. He's the lover of the good and the righteous. Look who you've been. Others might be able to be his friends, but not you, my friend. You've got such a terrible record right up to this morning. Or you've done one or two unspeakable things in the past and you can't get out of your head. Who will bring any charge against us? How's he going to think this one through? Well, same way he always does. Next verse, next statement. It is God who justifies. Who then is who can condemn? Who can then condemn? No one. Christ Jesus died. we well, going to do this? This is one of that healthy Holy Spirit thinking problem, issue, question? Jesus. That is always where the Holy Spirit was directed to. Not just to God in some theoretical way, but Jesus. And specifically, as does the Jesus and his death for you. A hundred beautiful, wonderful, unbelievable things are proven on a Good Friday. So God is absolutely for us. It is it says, Who will bring any charge against us? It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. What does justification mean? It means. As you know, this is what Romans one through five is all about. It's about how does God declare someone like you or me okay in His sight? How do you know when you stand before God on what will be the biggest day of your life by far, when you stand before God, the highest high court, and He will say one of the two things: Jesus says, either come on in, welcome, or depart from me, and that will control eternity. How do you know it's really going to Read Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. It's God who justifies those who put their faith in Jesus. Justifies in legal means acceptable. I share with you what I think is one of the best definitions of that rather complicated sort of legal word and it's when they were translating this word, dicke, into from Greek into pidgin English in parts of New Guinea. And they got this fantastic phrase, just nails it. God, he says, I'm okay. And that is exactly what it means to be justified. No one else may agree with God. You may disagree with God. Everyone say, no, I'm not okay. If God says you're okay, you're okay. Everyone who knows you might say, he ain't okay. There's no way in the world that way can be okay with God. If God says you're okay, you're okay. It's the only voice that matters. And when he says, if you will justify all those who put their faith in Jesus, so Martin Luther, one of my favourite stories about the great Martin Luther, was he was in the press of translating the Bible. It had never been translated into any of the European languages so for hundreds and hundreds of years. He's translating from the Greek into the German, and he has a couple of fairly blunt encounters with Satan. I've never had an encounter like that, but then Martin Luther was far from significant am, so I don't expect the devil to waste his time with little But Luther, maybe. Anyhow, he this sort of dream sort of thing where the devil comes in for him and mocks him for daring him to do what he's doing, translating the word of God, and then he says, I'll show you, just the Luther, why you can't, why you're unworthy, and he pulls out a whole long scrub, with all of Luther's sins, and Luther says, is that all? He says, no, and he pulls out a second scrub, Thought, word deed, sin sins done, and the Bible's teaching often, more importantly, things not done, sins of omission. They're all there the scroll too. And Luther goes, is that all? And he says, no, he pulls out a third of you and he stops at three. And he says, there are, to a couple of you, others, you, know God, you know of us who have never got to come near God. And Luther says, you just got up from one thing. Right on the bottom of those scrolls, 1 John one 1.7, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's sons, cleanses me from all he went back to work. That's true. <laughs> who can God. He says you were okay. And then he talks about the death of Jesus. It's solved by thinking about it. It's not solved by kissing your brain and hoping you'll feel better. It's by, it's by spiritual logic. So that's the first question. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a great confidence. We might think I'll all sorts of things. Cancer? My ex, whoever is making your life misery, and there will be people in this room whose lives are being made misery by various people, maybe depression. Something that just seems to rip your life to pieces. How are we going to cope? Go? If God is for us, who can be against us? Then he says the second question, and this is related to some of those ones we just mentioned. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything separate me from the love of Christ, the love that Christ has for me? Or you. Who can separate us from And this little word separates, so it's, a, it's a great word. It, it means to put space between something. So instead of things being locked together, it's, it's them being separated and then pushed apart, drifting apart, or driven apart. Right? So I was just thinking when I was doing some work on this, it's, it's like that little thing on my computer. I've got a space bar. You've got a space bar in your thing, you've got a word, you've got the little cursive thing in, you go space. More space. He's saying no one can do that between you and the love of Christ. It's fixed, steadfast, reliable. Not because you're worthy of it, because he just can't help himself. He's not just loving, but he is Who can separate us from the love of Christ? The word's also used for people who get divorced, who once were together, and then sadly are pulled and pushed apart. Say, so who can do that from the love of Christ? Can anything do that to us? Well, he's going to argue for the next couple, of, next couple of verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives a couple, couple of possibilities: shall trouble, hardship, persecution. He's saying that these things prove that God doesn't love you. Now, you may well think when you come into hardship, like you can't find a parking space at a parking lot or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the hardships we endure. Um, Imagine if you actually entered famine, not just that you can't afford to go out to some nice restaurant like that or something like that, but when you are literally unable to afford or find food. Does that prove that God doesn't love you? No. Nakedness. So poor and things have happened that you're running around, unable to find clothes. Does that prove God doesn't love you? Danger, sword, execution. So he gives seven things. these things separate. Different. Yet yeah, you may choose to process in the way that you get cranky with God, but He loves you as much that day as He loves you on your best day. His love is steadfast. Now, in all these things, we're more than comrades through Him who loved us. And then He gives ten possibility things: you know, angels, demons. Can they separate us from the love of God? Death, life. Powers, nor anything else in all creation. So there's anything, there this is few verses, 17 different things that you might think would separate you from the life of Christ. They all fail. He says, There's no anything else in all creation. There's two orders of being according to the Bible, and not every religion believes this. Many do, many don't. There's the Creator, and there's the creation. You must never blur what's on one side of that distinction. We're on one side of the distinction. There's the Creator and there's all things. So when does the devil send that? Well, he's part of the right? It's gone wrong, it's rebelled, hates God. But that's where it is. Nothing, he says, in all creation can separate you from the love of Christ. No matter how weak or pathetic you might think you are. Nothing can separate you from his love. He doesn't love you because you're lovely, he loves you because he's lovely. Nothing can cut you off from that, he says. Hmm. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. The love of God is in Christ Jesus. Now, what the big is this? Imagine. This will happen. But imagine that Satan. I don't know what a picture I have of Satan, but get rid of a picture because it's false. Right? He's a spiritual being. Most of the pictures we have are really not. He is a spiritual being of significant power and wisdom. An angel who has chosen not to serve God. He does not care about you. Not one bit. He's not competing to get you. God loves you and the devil loves you. You go, no, no. God loves you. The devil couldn't get into hell he knows it. But because God loves you, he notices. Because he hates, the way the Bible speaks, he hates God. He's God's enemy. If the devil's right, I'm going to use all of my skill and all of my experience for thousands and thousands and thousands of years of trying to break and torture and lead into darkness human beings. I'm going to use all of it to get in power or you at one level, that's worrying but in God, is for us, who can be against us? I've shared with some of you, I'm a little concerned for, for Joshua, what he's not here I don't want to embarrass him, he's got COVID um, I'm a bit concerned for him he's a young man I think God has given him some wonderful gifts and capacities, and I think Give him a couple of decades of serving Jesus, he can do a lot of damage to the, to the kingdom of nothingness. If I'm the devil, I'm going for you. I'll play the long campaign like, like in the you know, ancient days. They, they'd dig a tunnel and put a whole lot of explosives under the wall, they'd seem the seemingly impenetrable wall of some castle, and then blow it up. He'll play the long, slow games. do will do that. Or you, me. The simple fact is, why would we fear? Left to yourself, you've gone a second. We ought to be praying the prayers out of the Lord's Prayer. to Lead us out of temptation. Deliver us from evil. We are weak, vulnerable, endangered creatures, but God is for us. He will not hear charge against us. He will never forsake us or leave us. So even if it was the devil himself who to took a personal interest, there's no real need to fear. Be careful, but walk with the defence of God, and you'll be okay. That's what He's saying here. There's a reason here for very serious joy, no matter what's going on around us. Note the pattern, though. Question, answer, Jesus. Next thing, a cross. This is the way to do it. So, it's a funny thing. I'm just before I just writing up this first one, First two, first long First points the longest so don't panic. Um, many of you look. Well, well, he's been blessed through Dudley Ford in various places. He um, served God for many years in various parts of Sydney, then he went across to South Africa as an older man and did some extraordinary work there and then came back to Australia. When he was dying, uh, he took a while to die. Um, there was one night when he was pretty sure his number was up and he asked for his wife to read the Bible to him. And he said, I'd like you to read to me the end of the Romans. So Romans 8, 31. God, that's what is written against us. Now, why would you do, do that? I mean, what a waste of time. You should open up to Romans and say, oh, sweetie, I've done that from preachment hundreds of times. Give me something new. No, 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 that's no. That's not how a wise person works. You get back to these great central truths that your mind might remember, but your heart will forget the way up, to, to hear the red afresh. And you are oh, that's right. I am terrified of death. I am getting eaten up by cancer, but it will not have the last word on me. Things will hurt. But they won't win. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, what comes next? What comes after this magnificent triumph of joy and serious joy? Well, you could go straight to chapter 12, as so we'll look next week. You could skip chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, a bit like a dozen through Ephesians. Ephesians goes through up to chapter 3, terrific thing about the love of Jesus, and then the next thing is therefore, and it begins to tell us how to live, some specifics. But the Apostle Paul here delays that for three chapters. He's got another important issue that we need to look at. He goes from serious joy to serious pain. is the what a difference in tone and play that this is. Chapter 9, verse 1 of this. I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, he's already told us in chapter 5 that we should be filled with joy. He's just given us many good reasons to be confident, joyful, and to be upbeat. Who can separate us? Who can bring a charge against us? here he has been very glum. Sorrows, anguish. He starts in a most peculiar way. He starts saying, "I'm telling you the truth yeah, Well, we expect it to. Now he wants to underline this is the truth. Then he says, "I'm not lying." Yeah, my conscience bears me witness. He's saying something that he realizes people will have trouble believing. So he's pausing to say, "Listen, I'm, I'm absolutely in earnest about this." What's causing him grief? He makes really clear in verse four is. Sorry, verse 3. I wish I could have myself cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. We're going to see as we we'll look at this over the next few weeks. What's causing the apostle anguish in this? These own people, the people of Israel, the descendants made man, Jews, have as a group, the majority part of it, has refused to follow Christ. Now, many, many, many Jews, all the first Christians were Jews. Many of you will have friends who are Jewish by background and have come to follow Christ. It's happening all the time. But as a group, it remains separate. Now, the apostle mentions this because he is the apostle to the Gentiles, that is, to the non-Jews. His great call was to reach out to people like me who aren't related to Abraham, by birth and blood and DNA. Gentiles, nations. What he's saying is that my, that's where my ministry is out there, that's where God has called me to work. But my heart is still full of love and tenderness and special concern for my own people, which makes sense. It's what human were but like humans And he says that love has caused him real anguish. I have sorrow and anguish in my heart. They're both strong words, aren't they? But he adds adjectives to both of them that make them much stronger. He adds make mega to the first one. I have great sorrow. And I have unceasing anguish in my heart. The same gospel that produces joy and confidence also produces sorrow and anguish in a healthy heart. His problem is he has great sorrow, unceasing anguish. And by the way, the unceasing doesn't mean it's every second of the day. The word this word is used for things like a cough. You know, you might say, I've been coughing for a week. Well, not really. I've been coughing without ceasing. It just means intermittently, but regularly. Okay? So he's saying, I often feel. So he's not saying, you know, you know I don't know what he could have done for fun. He's squash, he's skydiving, I don't know. But when he was doing that, he's not saying he's sorrowful all the time, but he said, it's just part of the life. I have this anguish because of the fact that my own people have got their backs severely turned towards Jesus. And so, like Moses in Exodus 32, he says, I, I kind of wish God would cut me off if, if he could do it in exchange for them. It's a wish sort of thing. He's like, not actually asking you as a priest. And saying, it, it causes me so much grief. I think if I could do a swap with them, like Moses asked, and as Jesus did, it's a very Jesus thing to do, isn't it? It's okay, I'll swap what I deserve with what you deserve. And the Apostle Paul's saying, I kind of wish that could be done with because I so upset about the fact that they've got now. He's going to deal with us over the next couple of weeks with us here. Um, but it's a pain, that men, if you know, isn't it? We all know. You yeah, come to Christ and you discover that, yeah, in spite of the you are, he loves you and he accepts you and he fills you with his spirit and he's got great plans for you. But then you think, yeah, but well, I've these other people that I really love. Who have either walked away from Jesus or have never seem to have got it. And it causes fear and anxiety and worry and sorrow and unceasing grief. Now, if we don't have that, can I suggest we need to pray for ourselves? If we haven't worked out that so real is this, that for people who don't know Christ, they are a serious problem, we need to pray for a deeper, clearer understanding. Jesus really felt this. He weeps over Jerusalem and it's about to reject him. He said, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the sinner kills the prophets. How often I would have gathered you under my wings like a hand does a little chimney, but you would not. Jesus feels this grief for those about who are about to crucify him. This is part of loving our neighbor. This is great treasure. Sadly, the people in our families, people that we love, husbands, wives, children, parents, are not trusting Christ. This causes anguish. Now, because we don't like pain. We will sometimes learn to not think about it, not even pray about it, because that causes grief. Or maybe even learn a theology that says, that's oh, not all a problem here? Bring up a child of the way and a will go to the That's a proverb, not a promise. Or a proverb tells you, this is the way that life normally works. Or sometimes, no, my kid was baptized, either as a 13-year-old or as a 12 week old Some salvation found in being moist. It's about how a person is relating to Jesus. We can believe all sorts of stuff. We can oh, there's no such thing as hell. It won't go away because you pretended this there. You'll you. you find a book to the in any position you want to believe. But it change the reality? One of the reasons why Australia did so well when AIDS was fresh and new and killing huge of people was because Australia took it seriously and had some of the most shocking, actually, technically inaccurate ads but they they were designed to make everything else. And it made people nervous and it made people not die. You don't help people who are in danger by rewriting the universe or pretending to so they are in danger. And you may not like the pain, I don't like the pain of it with people that I love. But we need to be like Jesus, be like Moses, be like the Apostle Paul and say, yes, it does cause anguish and it does cause pain. And let that energise you in your prayer life, rather than work your way to deny reality. I remember as many of you will know Roy Williams, a great member of this church for many years. As he lay dying, in the two I think I only got to see him twice in hospital, but right at the very end. What his request for prayer for Margaret, who was going to be leaving behind, and his children and grandchildren that didn't know Jesus. This was what was on his heart. Not, why have I die of cancer? but right, Why wouldn't you die of cancer, frankly, at the age of 70-something? Nobody said to the way go, frankly. But his concern, his heart concern, was almost more because the heart was going to be okay. Or the breathing but, You know, she knows I'm talking about that. But it was his, Some of his kids who weren't following Jesus, some of his grandkids, he faced the pain, honestly, People sometimes ask me how my daughters are, I was chatting with someone who hadn't seen in years who came here at East Easter and said, how can you know I Well, my main concern is, one following Christ and two aren't. I can tell them how their degrees are going, nice house they're put, babies are on the way, the, 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 all of that matters, but do you think that's the main concern? The main concern, if I'm honest, is that two of them are in danger. They've got time to repent, but they better not play games. We want Jesus to come back, don't we? You'd better we be do No, we don't. Not yet. You know? And it's painful. COVID is not a big deal. You know, the, big, the big game is do people know Christ? Are they forgiven? Are they ready for eternity? Not are we going to get sick? Please don't miss out, we, we've done a lot of stuff here to keep people safe It matters. But if we start thinking that's the main thing we should be talking about and praying about. No, 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 this is the main thing. Whether or not people know the love of Jesus. Whether or not people are right with God. We've got to be real, in the way that Jesus is. All these things matter, but they're not the main game. I talk sometimes with Christian friends and say how did you... You wouldn't think these children only had a 70 or 80 year lifespan. Tell me about the borough that they've just bought. Like the world living for a few years. Tell, tell me about the degree or the new job. All those things I'm interested in. But if we're Christians, surely we can't talk about the people we love without any thought about the thing that's going to affect them forever and ever and ever and ever. The belief in the gospel of Jesus brings enormous joy and also the reality of God. I shall finish. It's a trying line between pleasure and pain. That woman, I don't even know name, I've never met her. Yeah. I think she saw things. She enjoyed the beauty of mercy and forgiveness and the steadfast love of the Lord. And she felt the sorrow that people she don't care about didn't. So she played it part. She felt the sorrow of people being in serious danger, which they are if they live and die, unforgiven, as if Jesus hadn't come down the most important beginning of the year. I remember on the first weekend away, we had here at, uh, well, it wasn't the first ones, at a, at a zillion, but the first <laughs> uh, one, you know, Ali and I got here. Someone suggested we have a prayer meeting, at a uh, place down at Bite up in this prayer room at the top, in the afternoon during the game time, and it was, I don't know whose idea it was, it wasn't mine, that we should particularly meet and pray for those who we loved and didn't know Jesus. People shared, Job were up there, and he was sharing people, it's, Extended family didn't know Christ and all was we praying for it. Because that is the thing to do. There's great joy as we look back to Romans 1 to 8. And there's also real sorrow. I don't like talking about this topic because I know many of us have got people that we love and care about. I don't like dragging you to think about painful things. But this is what the Word of God says we need to do. To take the Word of God seriously. And because of the Apostle unceasing grief, it ought to have some impact on our hearts and souls. Well, on that cheerful one, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've breathed these scriptures out and they're good and profitable for us. We thank you for the serious joy we have in Jesus. How, how difficult it is to believe that you love us the way that you do love us that we are completely acceptable in Jesus and your steadfast love will let us go. At the same time, our God, we pray that you would help us to be loving enough to bear the pain some people who really we care about are not in a good state before you and in life, and we pray that you would help us to be men and women who are prayerful, truthful and loving. We pray for this blessing in Jesus' name.